This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 89 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Our guest this week is Thomas H. Davenport. He's a world-renowned thought leader and author and is the president's distinguished professor of information technology and management at Babson College, a fellow of the MIT Center for Digital Business and an independent senior advisor to Deloitte Analytics. Tom Davenport is author and co-author of 15 books and more than 100 articles. His most recent book is titled The AI Advantage, How to Put the Artificial Intelligence Revolution to Work, Management on the Cutting Edge. And returning to the show to join us is Recorded Future's chief data scientist, Bill Ladd. Stay with us. Well, I think there are a variety of reasons why we're moving in a more sort of artificially intelligent direction. That's Tom Davenport. One is that we just have so much data in almost all aspects of business and and organizational life that we really have very little choice but to sort of automate some aspects of the analysis of it and to, um, to learn from it effectively and creating insights and making decisions and taking actions. And there are also some um, other kind of supply side factors related to we we have a number of new algorithms and we have some um, powerful um, new types of processors that um, can chew through all this data really quickly and learn from it. And then I guess you could say there's some um, demand side factors, uh, like we, we finally are starting to realize that we humans are not very good at making decisions in many cases. And a lot of the work we're doing is very tedious and there's just you know too much of it to do. So I think um, the demand and the supply factors add up to a pretty inevitable future for more AI and, and a whole variety of aspects of, of our lives. We tend to overestimate the short-term impact of technologies like these and underestimate the long-term impact. That's Recorded Future's chief data scientist, Bill Ladd. And I went through the human genome, you know, boom back in the 90s. And that was another case where that was exactly the case. Everyone thought that all of these drugs were just going to magically fall out of sequencing the genome. And it really didn't work that way. Hmm. Uh, And it felt like there was perhaps a bust. But, you know, there's not a drug discovery today that isn't built uh, on those technologies and those platforms that that drove those, that genome project, you know, and, and simultaneously, you know, the genome now people sequence themselves for a hundred dollars. Now, you know, now police use those public databases to find relatives of criminals. Right, the way in which that work has transformed our world is tremendous. But at the time, it was like, hmm, okay, we sequenced the genome, but now what? You tend to take a linear path when you think about where something is going to go. But it's really, it's really where kind of divergent or, you know, different approaches or, you know, things that are not just linear start to bump into each other that it's just so hard to predict, right? Hmm. And one of the reasons that that's hard to predict, right, is you have to kind of predict simultaneously where different technologies or approaches are going to be and then how they, they may react to each other, you know, when they get there. You know, as I think about what's going on right now in, in AI, a lot of it comes down to there are just so many different assets that are available to people to do these kinds of projects, right? There, there are assets that are the internal data 
you know, there's the assets, that's the external data, you know, what, what other data can I get, you know, more or less for free? Um, what software libraries are out there that I can use, right? You know, we have concepts right now where we use, you know, essentially people is APIs. So I can essentially make, you know, human processes part of my computing infrastructure. Yeah. Uh, you know, what can I do in the cloud architecture, right? You know, I can run experiments there that would require me to build a cluster of, you know, 100 servers, but I'm never going to do that for an experiment. Um, so all these different things, right, are all kind of marching along on their own, their own path. And, you know, in order to kind of really predict, you've got to, you've got to understand all the different players and where they're going to be at different points in time and what the potential connections are. So much of that, so much of those findings are opportunistic. Someone says, oh, if I took this and I took that and put them together, uh, it would be really fantastic. And it's hard to do that, you know, one technology or one, one approach at a time. Yeah, you know, I think um, particularly when it comes to AI and some of the hype that it's received uh, on the marketing side of things, I think sometimes uh, for, for many people, myself included, it's gotten a bit fuzzy as to what exactly we're talking about when we when we say AI versus machine learning, uh, those sorts of things. So, so in your mind, can you describe to us, how do you uh, set those boundaries? What's your definition of artificial intelligence? Yeah, I sometimes say God did not see fit to provide us with clear definitions of things and we we humans sort of muck it up all the time um but i view it pretty broadly actually ai being a collection of technologies um machine learning is probably the most um, popular and common and also the one that has a variety of interesting subcategories like neural networks and deep learning and so on Traditional machine learning is not so different from um, analytics, um, but when you get into some of the newer types of algorithms, the, the adversarial networks and deep learning networks and so on, you typically didn't find those in traditional analytics. And you also don't find too much of the language-oriented tools in traditional analytics. And as you know, there's a, a whole realm of natural language processing oriented um, technologies related to AI. And then there's some older ones like rule-based technologies, which one might think are gone because that was kind of the last generation of AI. But I just um, did a survey with Deloitte where about 50% of the companies said they were still using rule-based hmm. um, AI technologies. And then there are these things that, um, People refer to as robotic process automation, which aren't terribly smart right now, but are increasingly being combined with smarter technologies like machine learning. So I just put it all in the AI bucket, although clearly some um, are, are more intelligent than others. Yeah, it seems as though there, there are definitely some people who get their hackles up uh, when, when <laughs> I, I guess, are, are specific about what is and, and what is not. Um, and I wonder sometimes, you know, have we just through popular use have we reached the point where those distinctions have uh, have lost some of their usefulness i think they have um you know it's i've seen this in a whole variety of different domains certainly in the in the world of knowledge management in my past people could debate for uh, um, centuries almost you know when does a piece of data turn into information and when does that turn into knowledge and when does it become wisdom and so on and i just really said and eh, let's put it all in one big bucket. Let's explore this notion of, of what the role is specifically of data scientists uh, and, and put in uh, perspective with, with your background in analytics and then today with AI. 
Um, what is the role that data scientists have to play? Data science started around the turn of the century in Silicon Valley, and it was sort of a mixture of analytics and um, activities designed to turn unstructured data into structured data so it could be analyzed. You know, we're not very good at analyzing things unless it um, gets in a, a row and column of numbers format. And so if you want to analyze text or image or sound data or genomic data or something like that, you typically have to put it in a form uh, involving, you know, rows and columns of numbers. And so now um, in AI, you know, we don't really have any good uh, widely accepted term for um, someone who works with AI. Certainly data scientists do it to a substantial degree and a lot of the same activities that that I just described as being um, parts of data science are still necessary for AI. There are some data scientists who understand um, some forms of AI and some that are more comfortable with traditional analytics. So it's kind of a um, two messy categories overlapping with each other at various points. Hmm. Now, what's been the evolution or, or the, the easing in of this technology when it comes to being applied to cybersecurity? Well, I think that's a good way to put it. It is easing in, and it's early days still for the most part. Um, and as you suggested earlier, there's lots of hype about it. But um, the general idea is that uh, organizations have so many attempted hacks and breaches and attempts at fraud and so on that it's virtually impossible to do it all effectively with human labor. So more and more organizations are coming to the conclusion that we're going to need AI to do this, to you know identify particular um, patterns of threats, um, to analyze threat intelligence, to start to take automated action. I mean, the other thing with the um, hugely connected world that we have today, a serious um, malware attack can spread around the world in seconds. And so having a human sort of figure out what's going on and then determining how to react to it, you know, by the time uh, we, any of us could do that, um, it would be too late. So there's more and more a need for speed. And, you know, that's what AI is good at. Yeah, and I suppose on the flip side of that, there's that, uh, you know, that Hollywood uh, perception that uh, if we're not careful, we're going to end up with the Terminator. Um, yeah, well, I think there are all sorts of uh, both positive and negative attributes with applying AI to cybersecurity. People could take our good side um, AI tools and modify them and turn them into um, bad guy side tools relatively easily. And in fact, that's already been done in some large scale malware attacks. You took, I mean, if you define, for example, the U.S. intelligence services as on the good guy side, which I'm sure some people might dispute, but um, those uh, pieces of, of that, um, of code that they've developed have been adapted for malicious purposes uh, on a variety of occasions. So um, there are a lot of concerns. Uh, there are concerns about will this just end up being more work for humans? Because in most cases, we 
sort of um, will rely on these tools to identify threats, but to really confirm them, we might um, believe that a, a human investigation is necessary. And uh, so far, it appears that we are already having um, too many false positives from the use of these tools. So it's more work for us, not less work for us. Right. When we talk about the Terminator, we're talking about, you know, something which is, uh, you know, completely autonomous uh, in terms of, you know, how it thinks and what it can do. Um, and the reality is that where we're at primarily with AI technologies today is we're automating tasks that humans do. We're not automating jobs that humans do for the most part. So in a lot of ways, for me, what we're really doing is we're focusing on augmenting what an individual can do. How do I increase that individual's efficiency and productivity? Um, I have a hard time imagining getting all the way to automating humans. Uh, perhaps I'm limited in my imagination. But I see that we have the capacity to do a tremendous amount of improving the efficiency uh, that humans can do the things that they do. Yeah, I think a lot of people are wary. They look at uh, some of these uh, AI technologies as being sort of black boxes, and, and there's not a lot of uh, transparency for what's going on under the hood. And so they worry about things like biases being baked into the algorithms. But what are your thoughts on that? That is a um, true story with regard to some types of AI. Um, traditional sort of, you know, um, regression-based machine learning, typically not much of a problem because you can look at the um, regression equation and, and sort of see what the key variables are and so on. But once you start to move into algorithm types like even fairly simple neural networks and in particular deep learning algorithms, which typically have lots and lots, you know, um, thousands often, um, sometimes even hundreds of thousands or millions of abstract variables that don't really make any sense to a uh, human observer, even a very smart data scientist, um, you're, you're exactly right. Nobody is going to be able to identify, you know, why a particular prediction was made or a particular classification was made or, or something like that. In a lot of cases, it doesn't really matter. I mean, we don't really care why a, an algorithm decided that something was a cat on the internet. But, you know, um, if you decide that a massive cyber attack um, originated in the Russian government and uh, it leads to uh, a response, um, you know, we're talking pretty serious uh, <laughs> allegations there and pretty serious risks of some horrible things. So um, I think we're going to have to get better at interpreting these models if we're going to use them for serious um, cyber work. You know, at the end of the day, it's all algorithms um, and data. And so, you know, we're solving individual problems uh, with algorithms and data and just the scope of those problems gets larger and larger over time. And at some point it starts to look like something people call artificial intelligence. But basically, you know, you started 30 years ago looking at the data inside a system on computers that were really slow uh, inside the, you know, I say inside the system. I mean, we were looking at data that was held by the, an individual organization and you would have to write every line of code uh, that operated on those because there, there weren't meaningful libraries. You know, today you've got, you know, Python libraries that can do the bulk of the math work and you've got massive uh, cloud infrastructure that can hold the data and do the algorithms for you. There's more tools in the toolbox 
Um, and that's allowed us to do things that are much more complex and comprehensive than we've been able to do before. Now, in your estimation, how far along are we when it comes to developing AI? Is it is it still early days? Are we still in the pioneering stage or are we farther along than that? Um, I think it's pretty early days. And the, the reason is, you know, in cyber, we don't have a huge most of these machine learning models are trained through supervised learning where we have to have labeled data to say you know what really was a piece of malware and what doesn't and we don't really have any good worldwide databases of malware data so that we could clearly identify some code or something like that um, without you know having to go through a big data gathering exercise. Analyzing code in general is a pretty nascent area for AI to do. There are pieces of this that can be done relatively straightforwardly today, you know, um, analyzing some of the factors that might lead to breaches and, and hacks within organizations. You know, that's a pretty straightforward machine learning problem. And it's one that I'm actually working some with Recorded Future on where I'm an advisor, where we you know, might be able to look at different attributes of a company, you know, some things related to its scale and previous attacks and so on, and identify the, the particular level of risk and even you know, come up with a, a risk score uh, for that organization. That I think is pretty straightforward. But Really identifying malware or um, particular bad actors or something like that, I think very early days. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Recorded Future, and one of the things that, um, that they use is natural language processing. Can you, can you describe to us, first of all, what are we talking about with that, and, and what are some of the, the benefits that that can provide? Yeah, well, there are a variety of different approaches to natural language processing, but it's basically just making sense of language, natural language um, as used by humans. Um, typically, uh, you know, you want to do it across a variety of, of different languages since that's what we use in this world. And so um, at Recorded Future, they use it for um, uh, identifying uh, potential threats um, uh, from all over the world. People tend to talk about their cyber exploits to some degree and, um, you know, attacks get publicized. And so you can um, scrape that data typically off the internet, um, which they do at Recorded Future, and then they analyze it, classify it, count it, etc. So you get some sense of the broad world of threat intelligence. And, and I suppose it, it's a, a matter of being able to do it at a velocity far greater than than humans could do it themselves. Yeah, I mean, there's way too much data for humans to do it all. And as you suggest, we'd like to do it quickly enough so people could, you know, respond to it and and get the right defenses in place. Yeah, I, I want to uh, switch gears a little bit and, and get your take on threat intelligence itself and uh, where you think it fits in with organizations looking to defend themselves. Well, I think it's hard to would be hard to argue that it's not important and useful in that process. 
And, you know, I don't consider myself a huge expert in it, but I look at the stuff that comes out of Recorded Future and other organizations, and it, it um, basically uh, seems like basic, uh, a no-brainer to me that who wouldn't want to take advantage of it. Now, again, we have limited ability to react to it in any automated way now, but um, certainly being aware of certain types of threats and knowing what other people are experiencing around the world and what might be more likely to happen in the future. You know, as I say, we're a little bit short of being able to make absolute predictions about what's going to happen. But um, if something is happening to somebody else, you know, a, a large organization, chances are good that it could happen to you as well. So you might want to be prepared for for that kind of similar situation. You know, when it, when it comes to AI, um, have we reached a point yet where the, the systems are are capable of um, surprising the humans in, in specific ways? And I'm thinking of... Uh, to do something that really smacks of intuition. You know, we'll talk to analysts and they'll say, I really couldn't put my finger on it, but something just didn't feel right. And so I, I just felt like I needed to dig in a little bit more here. Are, are the AI systems capable of that sort of surprise? Well, not yet in any sort of, you know, standard institutionalized way. There have been some research-oriented applications, some games where... You probably remember that Microsoft research project Tay, where it uh, veered off in a racist direction. Um, There have been some games um, where um, one AI system was trying to beat a game and did so in ways that the human creators of it didn't anticipate. But I think it's probably a bit too early to even understand how likely that sort of intuition or creativity is is going to be. Hmm. Um, you know, ultimately, everything derives from the data. And so it could just be that there is some pattern in the data that we as humans did not really see, but the machine learning system is able to detect and, you know, make a decision or take an action on the basis of there's no questions that algorithms can generate unexpected results. You know, again, it's one of these things where we talk about the different flavors of AI. So if I talk about the the intelligence framework where I'm organizing information and presenting them to analysts, those algorithms are only going to focus on the things that I tell them to focus on. What that does, it gives a starting point for the human to have that intuition, uh, and not try to re- replicate it in the machine. Um, but to essentially do the legwork to get the human to that point and then to support that downstream research. And kind of those those unexpected findings, there where you're most likely to find those is in your essentially your machine learning classes of AI problems, uh, where you're essentially looking for uh, relationships between what I know uh, and what I want to classify and what I want to predict. Um, and it's absolutely you know true that you quite often find that uh, as you combine a number of input features into your machine learning problem, that the features that end up being important are not the ones that you anticipated necessarily. It's why you do the machine learning in the first place, to because you can't do that really at scale uh, as a human. Hmm. Um, and 
that's, I mean, I'm a statistician by training, right? That's, that's why we do statistics, right? Because we don't know what the answers are going to be. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, yeah. We do the, we let the, we let the math tell us, oh, these are the factors that are important. Um, and they may or may not be what we thought they were going in. So do you have any advice for people who are out there in the marketplace? You know, you, you go to a trade show and you walk around and everyone is saying, uh, our systems have AI or they have machine learning. What what are some of the ways that people can cut through that hype to to check and make sure that uh, what they're getting is what's promised? Well, you, you know, you have to ask a level of questions below that. So, you know, what kind of machine learning are you using? Where did you get the data? What kind of data is it trained upon? What kind of, of algorithm um, are you generally using? How interpretable is it? And as with any other area in um, business and organizations these days, I think it demands some degree of sophistication in your knowledge of, of AI in order to be able to ask those questions and, and interpret the answers. But in general, I do think that uh, one of the things that I see as a as a real challenge for AI in companies in any space, not just uh, um, cyberspace, is incorporating it into existing systems and processes. And so if you have a, a set of, of cyber tools that you're happy with and those vendors start to add some AI capabilities, I think in general you'll find it much easier to incorporate those into your you know, portfolio of tools than if you had a lot of standalone, you know, single purpose tools that had to be connected with everything else through APIs, or you had to write, a, had to write code to do it, or God forbid, you know, de developing it all yourself. Hmm. So, you know, we see this in a number of other domains. If you have a CRM um, system, customer um, uh, relationship management system, it's probably going to be easier for you to do machine learning based scoring of your leads by paying a few extra bucks to Salesforce or something like that for its Einstein lead store scoring capability than to develop it yourself. And I think we're going to see that in a whole variety of aspects of, of IT that people will find it easier to take what vendors have to offer unless they are you know, really sophisticated and really on the cutting edge. On one level, it's great that it, it draws, you know, the hype cycle is great. It draws a lot of attention, uh, maybe some investment dollars into technologies. Uh, on the flip side, it creates unrealistic expectations and unrealistic timeframes that you have to manage through, right? I think Tom did a great job of talking about, you know, where you start with uh, proof of concepts, that it's so easy to underestimate the process or organizational change that's required. You can have a great algorithm. But how does it fit into your organization? How does it fit into your technology stack? How does it fit into the way that you do business? Those are all non-trivial problems. Coming up with a great you know, piece of AI technology doesn't solve those problems. Traditional approaches to intelligence is you know, massive collection of content. Uh, humans sifting through those, that content and synthesizing their findings, uh, writing reports, and then other humans consuming those reports. Um, and what we do as a company is essentially try to automate as much of that as possible. We have a massive uh, data collection uh, infrastructure at the level of you know, some nation states. Uh, we have a massive NLP infrastructure that uh, basically organizes that data into entities and events that defines what things we think of are interesting 
uh, from a risk perspective or a threat perspective about those entities. Um, and summarize those key, that key information on a single intelligence card. Updated in real time, we have you know hundreds of millions of these dynamically generated reports that are available uh, to Intel analysts. Um, depending on what they do, that automated summary may be all that they need. Uh, in other cases, it's a starting point for a deeper research project. So at a high level, what we're doing is we're augmenting those analysts, Intel analysts, with a massive collection and sifting and prioritization engine. Now, we're not offering the easy button, right? Again, it's an augmentation issue, right? I'm not telling you that you're going to be attacked by this threat actor on this day and that you need to do this to remediate it. That would be great. But we're essentially automating a massive amount of what humans typically have done uh, in intelligence. That was Bill Ladd, Chief Data Scientist at Recorded Future. Our thanks to him for joining us. And special thanks to Thomas H. Davenport for joining us. His latest book is The AI Advantage, How to Put the Artificial Intelligence Revolution to Work, Management on the Cutting Edge. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett, the show is produced by Pratt Street Media, with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thank you.